Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine is now in its eighth month. As the West cheers on the admirable Ukrainian counteroffensive, what more can Canada be doing? And how does political communication at home and abroad shape the nature of that support? Why have the Ukrainians performed so well at controlling the information space? And what implications is the war having for LGBT people in Ukraine? I'm Adam Owen, joined today from Kiev by Adam Zivo, a political columnist with the National Post. Adam spoke with us shortly before leaving for the northeastern city of Kharkiv and closer to the front lines of the conflict. We were lucky enough to speak with him as he joined us on the ground. This is Political Traction. So Adam, thank you for joining us today. Uh, can you tell us about where you are and where you're going next? So currently I'm in Kyiv and tomorrow I'll be heading over to Kharkiv, uh, which is on the east, just by the Russian border. And there I'll be reporting on the war uh, and visiting nearby liberated villages, uh, possibly Izum and Liman, uh, to get a sense of what life is like for people who have just recently escaped occupation. You say recently, it, it's within the last month, I think, that those, uh, th those cities, that region has been liberated. Yeah. So like the thing is that there's a mix of different settlements. Uh, Kharkiv itself was never occupied, uh, though the city was shelled basically since the very beginning of the war. So there's a lot of stories there, but it's very distinct from, let's say, northern settlements, which have been, let's say, liberated for three months, four months. And then these other settlements, which have only had freedom for about a month. So you get it as this large set of different experiences. Uh, and you can make comparisons to see how Russian occupation has evolved based on what time that people have been liberated. How has it evolved over time? Uh, well, you know what? I wouldn't be able to say, which is why <laughs> I'm going there to report. <laughs> Great. What has the last eight months been like as a, as a correspondent? So the situation has stabilized. And right now it feels like it's a war of attrition. At the very beginning of the war, there was a lot of panic and people had no clue what was going to happen next. And in that initial stage, you saw a lot of uh, individual initiative to set up you know, volunteer organizations to do whatever you can. Everyone's life was on pause and because it was on pause, they had a lot of freedom to help the country in what ways they could. But over time, life goes on and the economy needs to be maintained. And so Ukraine bifurcated into two different worlds. Uh, there was the world on the front lines, which was heavily shelled, where life was nightmarish. Um, and that was the world which is almost exclusively focused on by the international media. There was The second world was a world composed of cities that were further away from the front lines. And their life went on with a certain degree of normalcy. And people who lived there you know, would go to work day after day, and they would go to cafes, they'd go to restaurants, and it would feel as if, you know, the war didn't truly exist there. And people living in those parts of Ukraine felt an immense sense of guilt because their fellow citizens were suffering while they got to live a relatively comfortable life. Uh, but at the same time, they also recognized that this comfort and this obstinate joy face of war was exactly what soldiers were sacrificing themselves for. So there were a lot of mixed feelings. 
Now, the boundary between these two worlds has become a bit more blurred uh, because Russia has begun to once again uh, send missiles into cities that are far away from the front lines, Kyiv being a key example, and also to attack energy infrastructure, uh, leading to a sense of anxiety about whether people will be able to heat their homes this winter, which reminds people every single day that even if they're not on the front lines, you know, significant sacrifices are made everywhere. You've written about LGBT issues in this war. With a notably homophobic country like Russia invading from one direction, but countries like Poland and Hungary in the other direction that have their own problems for LGBT people, the pressure must take on an added dimension. Well, so here's the thing. Uh, Ukraine has seen a significant social transformation over the past 10 years, and that's been a consistent theme across almost all of the people who I've interviewed and different minority groups uh, are represented there too. So Ukraine in the early 2010s was a fairly closed society that was homophobic and racist. Um, then Euromaidan happened and Ukrainians began to think of themselves in a new way and began to think about how they could better align themselves culturally with Europe. Uh, at the same time, they began to more progressively, sorry, more aggressively pursue integration with the EU, and that came with certain legal obligations, which included robust legal protections for minorities. So you have, at the same time, a cultural and legal reorientation. What that meant was that by the late 2010s and you know, the early 2020s, uh, LGBTQ rights and, and, and racial equity had significantly improved, um, even though there are, of course, still huge improvements to be made. So in major cities in Ukraine, it's okay to be gay. Uh, it's generally okay to be black, but it could always be better. Now, this has a geopolitical dimension because Russia uses traditional values as a form of soft power. It positions traditional values as a foil to Western values. And their discourse around the West is you know, based on this idea that Europe is perverted it's degenerate, it's satanic. Uh, these are you know, words that are used consistently by Putin. And this plays in Ukraine in the way that the Russians talk about Kyiv. So when Russia took over Eastern Ukraine, parts of it, they, they joked, for example, that all the gays had fled to Kyiv. They, they try to argue that the, the Kyiv, like, that Kyiv is simultaneously infested with Nazis and also really, really gay. And, and it doesn't make a lot of sense, but when you're so enmeshed with an ideology like that, you, you end up doing all sorts of different gymnastics. Well, my understanding is that the, the, the Russian definition of Nazi is just anybody who doesn't like Russia. Well, this, that's the thing is that it would be easy for us to, dism to dismiss their, their rhetoric uh, that way, but the fact is they genuinely believe that Ukraine is infested with Nazis because they're constantly fed uh, like images of Nazism in Ukraine, but much of it is just cherry-picked anecdotes that don't align with the experiences of Ukrainians here, nor of international war correspondents here, and don't align with hard data. We have to remember that far-right parties have never gotten more than 5% of the vote since 2014. That brings up a, an interesting aspect to how this war is being fought in the information space. Now. Zelensky has been an excellent communicator throughout this war. He's captured 
the hearts and minds of Western audiences uh, with his speeches, his composure, even right down to his his outfits and the the, the olive green T-shirts that he's that he's always seen always seen wearing. Uh, but both Ukraine's military and civil society have shown a tremendous capacity for info information operations. What are they doing right, and, and how are they set up for success? I think they're set up for success in virtue of the kind of workforce that they have and the kind of economy that they have. Uh, Ukrainians tend to be, I guess, better off, or if you want to use the term more developed, I realize it's a problematic term, but we all know what that term means, relative to other countries which have been victims of conventional warfare in recent decades. Uh, Ukrainians are, a lot of them work in marketing, a lot of them work in content production. Uh, a lot of them are cheap labor for Western firms. And so they have experience with putting together really effective communication strategies and social friendly content that can get their message across, which is why you see really effective political memes coming out of Ukraine, which is why you see really effective, very well-produced videos communicating their side of the story. And that kind of grassroots, uh, content slash communication status strategy, you know, driven by a uh, workforce, you know, where there's lots of hipsters and like a very vibrant creative class uh, is an effective counterweight to Russia's propaganda strategy, uh, which is backed by a lot of state money. Yeah, we get the benefit of seeing Russian television uh, through media monitoring, probably more than your average Russian citizen gets to see Western Western media. Uh, and it it does look very top down, very, very bureaucratic, but it's also it also takes on the form of state power. You have these big, strong looking men huddled around in a in in, in a large uh, in a large theater just yelling at each other as opposed to uh, what you would typically see in 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 Western democratic media. So one small area where Russian information ops might have been successful is their ability to turn both the far right and the far left in the West uh, against support for, for Ukraine. And while I believe polling does show that there is still significant support for the support that the West is, is giving Ukraine, it is, it is quite notable to see uh, the Russian media, Russian information ops, uh, taking a two a two pronged flanking approach with both the extreme right and the extreme left. Well, well, so that's an extension of Russia's digital strategy that goes back as far as 2015. Uh, Russia is very very good at engaging the far left and the far right, and that's something that was seen in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, when yes, you know they for the most part supported the far right, but they also inflame the far left and learn how to create messages that, you know, uh, effectively targeted their grievances. Now, Russia's ability to reach these political fringes, of course, uh, relies on these political fringes having pre-existing reasons to support Russia or oppose Ukraine. And that's something that you can find the far left and far right for very distinct reasons. So for the far right, there's a lack of strong vision on foreign policy because neoconservatism was discredited with the United States's, you know, forever wars in the Middle East, and nothing really arose to replace it. 
And in the absence of a positively defined foreign policy vision, foreign policy kind of fell to the wayside and became an extension of domestic politics. So you had isolationism during Trump years, but then you had people uh, trying to use foreign policy to score points in the American culture wars. So this idea that the United States should support Russia and should support Hungary because they are allies against quote unquote wokeness, right? Uh, so the far right will align themselves with whatever is seen as anti-woke because they're battling that culture war at home and they wanna bring in foreign allies. Um, on the far left, you've had a tendency to apologize for authoritarians just so long as they're opposed to Western power. I once read an author who very succinctly described this as the anti-imperialism for idiots. People who uh, are very anti-imperialist in quotation marks, but their definition of anti-imperialism is whatever opposes the West. For them, they think that the West is always bad and everyone else is always good. And they kind of deny moral agency to any other country and, and don't understand the world is more morally complex than their framework. Uh, so for them, they think that, okay, because Ukraine is supported by the West, Russia, therefore, must be good. Where, and, and that leads to strange situations where you have, you know, hyper-leftists supporting a quasi-theocratic, like fascistic, deeply conservative state like Russia. They don't even have to be socialist governments to be the beneficiaries of, of the extreme left's anti-imperialist support, do they? they? If you look at a country like Russia, they are definitively acting imperial. They're invading a, uh, a neighboring country. They are chauvinistic, as you say. They are uh, conservative. They're deeply capitalist. It's, it, it's, the, the irony is really staggering that, that these uh, you know, university extreme left uh, figures just in their grasping at anything that is uh, anti-imperialist end up going after the arguably more imperialist countries. Well, well, that's the thing is that they, they kind of do gymnastics to to reinterpret the conflict in whatever way uh, papers over this contradiction. And so you'll see, for example, these anti-imperialists who are preoccupied with these phantom Nazis in Ukraine and are preoccupied with the imperialism of the West and the imperialism, quote unquote, of NATO and let's say Western-backed international finance, but they never comments on Russian imperialism. They never comments on anything there. They don't understand Eastern European history and the colonial trauma there, nor are they interested in exploring that. Uh, and so there are double standards there in terms of what they call imperialism is quite uh, staggering and very noticeable. Um, Any, anytime anybody complains about Western-backed international commerce, I think most people know what they're what they're trying to say, and they're not they're not allowed to say uh, with big big quotation marks there. Yeah, there's that. I mean, the anti-Semitism is there. Uh, one thing I will note, and this is something that you know I've seen, is you know me being an LGBTQ reporter in Ukraine. I've been very disappointed by the radical queer left. You know, I thought they would have a bit more integrity, but they're really pro-Russian. And it's been difficult because, for example, I've interviewed LGBTQ activists in Ukraine who are concerned that if Ukraine falls, 
that LGBTQ people in Ukraine will be hunted um, like they were in Chechnya in 2017. They're, you know, these activists are aware that at the very beginning of the war, there were kill lists of human rights workers, which included LGBTQ activists. And so these activists were begging for Western support, saying that, you know, queer rights in Eastern Europe would be irreparably harmed if Russia were to succeed. And then you have, you know, some person with a septum piercing and fringe bangs uh, <laughs> tweeting out of some university campus that Ukraine is a Nazi country and should, should, should be reabsorbed into Russia. Oh dear. Well, uh, the, the irony is, is staggering. What, what can Canada do to continue supporting Ukraine in, in this war? I mean, you know, the most significant form of support is material support. Uh, so any humanitarian aid and military aid would be fantastic. Uh, when it comes to humanitarian aid, I would imagine that anything that keeps people warm will be vital in the winter, given attacks on energy infrastructure. But on top of that hard aid, it's important to also provide some form of symbolic gesture that you know, very clearly shows who we believe is in the right and who's in the wrong. And I recently argued that one way to do that would be to, des to designate uh, Russia a terrorist state. Um, that would allow Canadian citizens to sue Russia um, for damages, but that's a fairly minor benefit. I think the more significant benefit is that it would uh, undermine Russia's talking points in that Russia is trying to convince the world that this is a morally gray conflict and that Ukraine is the real terrorist and all that stuff. And I think that it's important for Western countries to very clearly and emphatically state who they believe is in the wrong here. Um, I think on top of that, it's important for us to make sure that any commitments that we do make are actually followed through and not just used to you know, create nice photos that can be splashed upon the news to make our politicians look good. And so uh, one thing that really irked me was back in May, Trudeau went to Kyiv and he uh, was part of a ceremony to reopen the embassy in Kyiv. And at the time I wrote a very glowing uh, article about him for that. I, I thanked him, I thought that was great. Um, I said, even though I don't agree with his politics, I thought that that choice to come there and do that at that time was phenomenal. Uh, but then in the summer, we realized that the embassy hadn't actually been reopened and that it was just a photo op and nothing else. Oh, and wow. yeah, the government had effectively lied to everyone about the embassy. And now it seems like the embassy is reopened. I'm not entirely sure, but only after the media excoriated the government from misleading the public. Um, and then the final thing is that if we are going to uh, impose sanctions, we do need to make sure that we follow through when it matters. So back in the summer, there was a bit of a conflict because uh, Siemens, the, uh, the German manufacturing conglomerate, uh, they are responsible for uh, maintaining turbines for the Nordstrom 2 pipeline. And you know, due to global supply chains, one of these turbines was in Montreal being repaired. And so when you have a commodity in Canada as part of a global supply chain, you know, it's subject to Canadian law, which means that it's also subject to our sanctions.
So by all rights, according to our sanctions, that turbine shouldn't have been sent back to Germany because we knew it would go back to Russia to aid in their energy right. infrastructure and help fund this war. Um, but the governments uh, issued an exemption to allow the turbine to go back to the pipeline. Yeah, Thereby Olaf uh, Scholz came over here personally to uh, to see to it. Yeah, he did. And, and, and the thing is, you know, Russia hawks knew that this wasn't going to do anything. You know, we knew that even if you return the turbine, that natural gas still wouldn't flow to, to, to Germany. And that's exactly what happened. The Russians found some other excuse. But because we were weak and didn't stick to our principles, we were able to show, sorry, we accidentally showed that our sanctions don't really matter because we only enforce them when there's no cost, which is to say we only enforce them when they're not effective. Adam, this has been a really insightful, really illuminating conversation with me. So I, I really do want to thank you for, for joining us today, especially given everything that you have going on. Best of luck, safe journey to Kharkiv tomorrow. Uh, we know it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's 11 p.m. Uh, in Kiev right now, so uh, we won't take up too much more of your time. But uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And thank you for providing a platform to talk about Ukraine. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Kayla Duty, Matthew Barnes, Hunter Nifton, Jeff Costin, Jenny McElwain, and Zeus Eden. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.